So if you would, uh, turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, looking at the story of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Luke chapter 2, 8 through 20 is our text. And as you make your way to that text, I want to begin just by asking you a kind of a silly question, a simple question. When was the last time that you can remember being genuinely surprised by something? Like you were minding your own business, minding your own affairs, going about your life, and something came up out of nowhere that took you completely by surprise. Just think over the past year of your life and ask yourself, when was the last time that that happened to me? Maybe you were recently offered a job that you weren't asking for. Somebody came to you out of the blue and said, would you be interested in this? Or maybe your friends threw you a surprise party for your birthday or for some milestone in your life. And if you're anything like me, you don't care much for surprise parties, but somebody loved you enough to throw you one anyway. In all likelihood, some of us are going to be genuinely surprised tomorrow by a gift that one of our loved ones gives to us. Maybe you'll be surprised by the level of thoughtfulness of the gift, or maybe you will be surprised at the lack of thoughtfulness in the gift. And if you're in danger of giving such a gift to someone that you love, just remember, it's only Christmas Eve, right? The stores are still open today for a little while longer. You can find a better gift. Husbands, nudge, nudge, right? I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble. It's not why I bring this up. Instead, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to think about this in the story of Scripture. If you look throughout the entirety of the Bible, one thing that you're probably going to notice is that God has a tendency to use the element of surprise. He has a tendency to use the element of surprise. In fact, some of the most significant parts of the Bible involve God catching somebody by surprise. Think of Moses, for example. Here was Moses, a guy who had run away from his home in Egypt, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's working as a shepherd, and one day, seemingly out of nowhere, he just so happens to come upon a burning bush. And in that moment, his life changes forever. Now, Moses wasn't looking for that. He wasn't expecting it. No, he probably woke up that morning assuming that that day was going to be like any other day. But lo and behold, God shows up and he calls Moses to go back to Egypt so that the children of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, could be set free from the tyranny of Pharaoh. What about the story of Samuel and David? After the repeated failures of King Saul, God comes to Samuel and he tells him, it is time to anoint a new king over Israel. And God says, go to the house of Jesse, because one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. 
And so Samuel does just that. He obeys God. He shows up on Jesse's doorstep and he tells Jesse, I am here at your house today to find the new king of Israel. So Jesse, being probably pretty excited about this, he, he brings all of his sons to Samuel and he brings them to him starting with the oldest son. But Samuel says, no, 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 no. None of these men are the right men for the job. Jesse, do you have any other sons? Is there anybody else here? And Jesse probably kind of sheepishly said, well, there is one. He's the runt of the family, but he's out with the herds. I didn't even bother to bring him in for this. And God confirms to Samuel that very day, that's the one. That's the future king. Compared to his brothers, no one thought David even warranted consideration, but God had a surprise in mind. God surprised his people by showing them that the runt of the family was destined for royalty. It's the last thing anybody expected. And yet this is the kind of thing that happens over and over and over again in the story of the Bible. God uses the element of surprise to show us that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And the Christmas story, the story that we're going to look at today, is no exception. Just like in the stories of Moses and David, God shows up once again to surprise some shepherds. But unlike in the story of Moses or David, no one regarded these shepherds. No one would have given them a second thought. No one would have looked their way. Like if you were a religious person in first century Israel, you had the highest regard for Moses and David, but these shepherds here, in the Gospel of Luke, these shepherds deserved no regard whatsoever, at least in your mind. One commentator explains this. He says that this story in Luke's Gospel would have challenged the values of many religious people who despised shepherds, with earlier examples of Moses and David notwithstanding. And the reason for this widespread contempt, this dislike of shepherds, was that a shepherd's work kept him from participating in the religious activity of the Jewish community. So this just goes to show how surprising this must have been that the good news of Jesus Christ coming was first proclaimed to a group of shepherds. Right? It was, it was the last place anybody expected. It was far from the halls of religious power and prestige among people that nobody regarded. And yet it was there, of all places, to our surprise, that the glory of God appeared. The light of heaven broke through in the stillness of night to make an announcement that a child had just been born in the city of David. Let's look at what Luke tells us about this. We'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll go through verse 14. Luke writes, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day 
in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been here over the past few weeks, you know that we've been observing the season of Advent by looking at how Jesus Christ is our Prince of Peace. And we've been looking at this because it it goes to the heart of this good news of great joy that the angels announced to this ragtag group of shepherds. The angel of the Lord appears and he says to them, there is a Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord of Lords. And because of his birth today, there is now peace on earth. Hopefully over the past few Sundays, we have become better positioned to understand what it means for there to be peace on earth. We've looked at three different dimensions of how Jesus is our Prince of Peace. In case you missed any or all of those, let me just quickly remind you of these three dimensions of peace on earth through Jesus Christ. On the first Sunday of Advent, we saw that Christ came to give us peace with God. Left to ourselves on our own, we come into this world as persons who are far from God. We are unable to draw near to him, unable to come to him. But in Jesus, we have now forever been reconciled to our God and Father. We can now dwell with him as his dear children. We now belong to him. On the second Sunday of Advent, we looked at how Christ came to give us peace in anxious times. So in Jesus Christ, God promises to us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And and that is the promise that we bring with us into prayer, right? When we're worried, when we are fearful, we can bring our request to God and we can know that he is offering to us his perfect peace. And then last week, the third Sunday of Advent, we looked at how Christ came to make peace between people. So that the the things that divide us, the things that tear us away from each other, no longer define us. But what comes to define us instead is the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. And that's what brings us together as the people of God from all walks of life. And so with all of this, what we've been laboring for you to understand through these three dimensions of peace on earth is that the peace that Jesus came to give us, it is a comprehensive peace. It pervades every area of our lives. And this is so important for us at this time of the year. Because one of my concerns is that the idea of peace on earth becomes watered down for us. You see, peace on earth is not merely some nice sentiment that we plaster on our holiday cards. Instead, peace on earth is a glorious living reality. It's something that comes to define every moment of our lives when we surrender by faith to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is exactly what happened to the shepherds on that night so long ago. 
So what I want us to do today is I want us to focus on the shepherd's response to this good news of great joy that Christ came to bring peace on earth. This morning, as we receive this news of peace on earth, we, just like the shepherds, are being summoned to come to the manger. We are being summoned to the manger for two reasons. The the nativity of Christ summons us for two distinct purposes. And we find these two purposes in our text. Let's pick it back up in verse 15, and we'll read through verse 20. Luke continues and says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, as it had been told them. So the first reason that Christ summons us to his manger is so that we can marvel at his coming. So that we can marvel at his coming. We need to remember that's the whole point of Christmas. Linus has it exactly right. So Christmas is all about Charlie Brown. It's why we observe this thing called Christmas. Because we need to return again and again and again to the jaw-dropping, mind-bending wonder of the incarnation. But at this time of the year, it, it can be so easy to get distracted. Like there are all sorts of things that serve to dampen our sense of wonder at what Christmas really is all about. And I'm curious about you this morning. What is it in your life around this time of year that keeps you from marveling at the mystery of Christmas? Is it the busyness of the holiday season? You know how it can be. Things get really busy. There's a ton of shopping to do. There's meal planning. There are like a million Christmas parties that you have to go to. It seems like there are more and more every year. And all of that, all of that can demand our time and our attention and our energy. Another reason for distraction is that we become preoccupied with the cares of life. This comes all too naturally to each and every one of us. Maybe you come into this place today and you're hurting or you're sick or you've fallen on hard times financially. Those are very real struggles that can rob us of our sense of wonder at Christmas time. Personally, I'll confess that one thing that can rob me of my sense of wonder is that I'm so familiar with the Christmas story. I grew up going to church, and so I've been hearing about these shepherds from the gospel of Luke for my entire life. And sometimes, if I'm honest, I have to admit that I wonder whether or not I can wring anything else out of this story that I've been listening to for almost four decades. And so when it comes to Christmas, the familiarity 
can cause the, the majesty and the mystery to wear off a little bit. My heart, it grows dull in the face of the most glorious event that has ever happened in the history of the world. Maybe, just maybe, you can relate to that too. And really, that's why we need to be here today. It's why we need to sing these songs and these Christmas carols together. It's why we need to, to read the scriptures together and study the scriptures together. It's why we need to say the Nicene Creed together. I mean, just think about what we're confessing when we say the words of that creed. It's really astonishing what it says about Jesus. It tells us he's the only begotten son. He's begotten from the father before all time. He is light from light, true God from true God. He was not created, but he was eternally begotten. He is of the same essence as his father. He is the one through whom all of creation, all of this world came into being. That's who Jesus Christ is. That's who the son of God is. Now just listen to this. Pay close attention. I know we've said it already. But let's just slow down and ponder that this Jesus for us, and for the salvation that we desperately needed, he came down from his throne in heaven. And he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became human. Can we just set aside every distraction and just kind of linger over that? together for just a moment? Can, can we try to wrap our hearts around this glorious reality, this, this wonderful, marvelous truth of the incarnation that God from God, light from light, the everlasting son of the father became human. He became just like you and me. But there's not only the reality that he came, there's also the reality of why he came. The creed tells us that he came down for us and for our salvation from sin. Back in verse 12 of Luke chapter 2, the, the shepherds received a sign. The angel gave them the sign that this child was born, not in the halls of some palace, but he was born and laid in a manger. Now, this, friends, is something that would have got the shepherds thinking. This would have been striking to them. They, they would have put this together that Israel's Messiah and Lord was to be found in the place where the young lambs were being kept. In other words, that this child was not only born to be their Lord, to be their Messiah, he also came into the world as a lamb. John the Baptist would later confirm this when he saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus came. He came to be the spotless, perfect Lamb who would be sacrificed on the cross of Calvary for our sins. I recently read an author who wrote this question. He asks, what kind of God elects to be born in the dung of this world with a death sentence on his head? That a God would do this 
is the most surprising thing that we could possibly imagine. But then again, as we've already discovered, God likes to use the element of surprise. And so he surprises us in the greatest way of all. The Lord of the universe becomes the lamb who for sinners was slain. When was the last time these things really landed on you? When was the last time you found yourself doing what the shepherds did in Luke's gospel? They heard the news. They heard about the Christ. They saw that he is both the Lord and the lamb, and they marveled. They marveled at him. The Puritan Stephen Charnock says that in the incarnation, there are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that it astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. And so it was that the shepherds being summoned to the manger made haste to marvel at the coming of the Lord, the one who is both God and man. Of course, they didn't fully understand what it was they were witnessing. They didn't put the doctrine of the Trinity together. They didn't put the doctrine of the incarnation together in that moment, but they knew enough, right? They knew enough to come running. They knew enough to make haste. And today, knowing what we know, being able to say the Nicene Creed together, we are called to do the same. We are being summoned to the manger so that we can behold our Prince of Peace. That's not all. We are also summoned to the manger for a second reason. We come to the nativity of Christ so that we can then return to our place in this world still marveling. God wants us to carry the wonder of Christmas with us into our daily lives. We see this in verse 20 where it tells us that after Mary and Joseph had been told by the shepherds all that they had seen and heard, what did the shepherds do? They returned. They returned. You know, it's interesting. After the shepherds saw Jesus, in one sense, their lives went on the exact same way as before. They still had the same responsibilities, the same chores, the same circumstances, the same routines. They still inhabited the same place as before. None of those things had changed. The sun would rise on these shepherds the very next morning and virtually nothing about their situation would be different. And yet, in another sense, in a much more real sense, in a much more important sense, the lives of these shepherds were now completely different. They had encountered the Prince of Peace. They had seen the child in the manger. And his birth had completely transformed them. He had completely changed them on the inside so that every moment of their lives from that point on would be infused with worship and rejoicing and awe and wonder. Their lives would now be both mundane and not mundane at all because now they had seen the Lord. They had seen the Christ child. This is one of the things that Good news of great joy does for us. It allows us to return to the humdrum of our daily lives with a completely different perspective. Because here's the thing. Even though we are all summoned 
to marvel at the manger, at some point, we're all going to have to do the dishes. But that does not mean that the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ has to end at the kitchen sink. The glorious news of Christmas won't end tomorrow at the stroke of midnight. No, the endless eternal wonders that we celebrate at Christmas time can still inhabit the most mundane activities of your daily life. And this is so important for us to remember, friends. Because after Christmas is over, after all the decorations come down, after the presents have all been opened and the Christmas cookies have all been eaten and your family finally goes home, praise God. <laughs> after all of that, things will go back to normal. Meaning, you are going to have to do what the shepherds did. You're going to have to return. You're going to have to return to your place in this world. And on Tuesday morning, when that happens, when it's time to get up, your ability or your inability to marvel is going to reveal the extent to which peace on earth has permeated your soul. Will you still be rejoicing in the Prince of Peace on your commute to work as you sit in stop and go traffic? Will you still hold fast to peace on earth when you have to change that dirty diaper? Kids. I know it seems like you've got a long time before you have to go back to school. But when that time comes for you, you to re-enter your class and start doing homework again, and to, to be amongst the drama of all your fellow students, at that point, will you still be marveling at this good news of great joy? Will, will you still be treasuring that? One of the most valuable lessons that the shepherds can teach us is the gift of returning to our place in this world without losing the wonder of the incarnation. Because if the incarnation means anything, one of the things that it must mean is that every moment of your life matters. Every activity matters. Every interaction matters. Every place matters. Even your place in this world. If a manger in Bethlehem can matter for the eternal purposes and plans of our God, then everything about your life can matter too. It can matter because Christ came to bring peace on earth. Not peace somewhere else for somebody else, but peace on earth for you. And for me, peace on earth in your little corner of life in this world, the Prince of Peace has now moved into your neighborhood where you live. You know, I, I recently admitted to somebody that my all-time favorite movie is a Christmas movie. My all-time favorite movie is Frank Capra's classic film, It's a Wonderful Life, starring the incomparable Jimmy Stewart. Now, I know some of you guys are going to roll your eyes at that. It's a pretty polarizing movie, right? There, I like to think there are two kinds of people in the world, right? There are people who like It's a Wonderful Life, and they get it, and then there are people who need lots of help. Some of you guys need to repent today. But seriously, like to me, I would, I would rather watch no other movie than this. If you give me a choice of one movie to watch for the rest of my life, it would be It's a Wonderful Life. 
And I think one of the most valuable things about the movie is that George Bailey, the main character, learns that it's a gift to be able to return to his place in this world, which for him was Bedford Falls. Of course, that's not how George had always thought of it. As a younger man, George resented his hometown. He viewed it as a barrier to his happiness and his success, his flourishing, and so he could not wait to get out of Bedford Falls. He had spent his whole life looking over the shoulder of the people right in front of him because he thought that there was something out there in the world waiting for him that would be better for him. Peace on earth could not possibly be found in Bedford Falls, or so George assumed. But one Christmas Eve, just like the shepherds in Luke's gospel, George had an encounter with an angel that changes everything. The angel whose name is Clarence shows George what Bedford Falls would be like without him. In fact, there wouldn't be any Bedford Falls at all. Instead, George wakes up in an alternate reality where his hometown had been transformed into Pottersville, a sleazy, gritty place that capitalizes on people's worst vices. And at one point, George can't take it anymore. He cannot handle another moment in Pottersville, and he finds himself desperate to return to Bedford Falls. Now, just think about that. In a a glorious twist of irony, George longs to return to the same place that he had resented, and he couldn't stand. Now, he wants to be there more than anything else, and so he prays, God, let me live again. Please, I want to live again. It's the best part of the movie, because the snow starts to gently fall, and George is once again given the gift of being able to return to his place in this world. And from that point on, he rejoices over every aspect of his life, right? He he rejoices over his neighbors, his family, his job, his home. Everything about Bedford Falls gives George a reason to marvel. And I think that's a picture for us of how we are supposed to live once we have peered over the side of the manger and beheld the prince of peace. The shepherds returned glorifying God. George Bailey returned glorifying God. And I think the question that stands before us today is, will we? Come Tuesday morning, will we return to the humdrum of our lives, seeing every moment as an occasion to marvel at God's greatest gift of all, the incarnation of his beloved son? Will we view every moment as a gift to be able to worship the Lord? If God likes to use the element of surprise, then maybe this is how he wants to surprise us today. That Tuesday morning doesn't need to be something you dread. Instead, because of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, you get to wake up in Bedford Falls. And that means that you get to return to your place in this world still marveling. Sure, things may seem mundane. Things may seem ordinary. It may seem like a day that's pretty much like any other. But remember that because of the incarnation, everything is now different. Everything is now new. 
In fact, we're going to receive a meal in just a moment that demonstrates the very thing we're talking about. The elements on this table, the bread and the cup, are ordinary. You can buy these same things at Hy-Vee for just a few bucks. And in of themselves, these elements are nothing special. But because the divine Son of God came down from heaven and took on flesh, because the glory of his deity became united to this physical world in his humanity, these physical elements now take on new meaning. I love what one author says. Just listen to this. He says, in his Son, God has joined himself to humanity. He has joined the spiritual and the physical. He does not act at a distance. He does not act in abstraction, but rather he acts in proximity and in a concrete manner so that when communion is received with faith, the recipient actually participates in the body and blood of Christ, receiving his benefits of redemption, being nourished to greater faith, being sustained to everlasting life, and being joined more closely to Christ and his body, the church. So because of the incarnation, this isn't just bread and juice anymore. This is anything but ordinary. This is extraordinary. These elements become emblems of the broken body and spilled blood through which we can see his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father who is full of grace and truth. That's why we return to this table week after week. It's because God takes the ordinary stuff of life and he infuses them with glory in the highest so that we can know in our heart of hearts the very thing that the angels announced, good news of great joy, peace on earth, and goodwill toward men. If you're here today and you don't believe in that, you don't believe this good news that we've been talking about, We want to ask you to abstain from coming forward to take this meal with us. Instead, what we want to do is we want to plead with you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you trust in him, if you turn from your sinful ways, from your life in this world, he will give you the peace that we've been talking about here this morning. That's his promise to all who will call upon his name. For those of us who do believe the good news, will come forward in just a moment. We'll do that by coming down this aisle. We'll begin in the front row and move to the back of the room. We'll come down this aisle, walk across the front here, and make our way to the table to receive the meal. But before we do that, church, would would you go before the Lord with me and let's pray to him. Lord, our hearts, our hearts, so easily grow dull to the wonder and the mystery of your coming. So God, we ask you to awaken us today. Cause our hearts to come alive at the thought that the fullness of deity dwelled in the frame of an infant. Teach us once again to marvel. And when Christmas is over, God, I ask that the marveling would not end that we would carry it with us as we return to our place in this world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, come to the feast.
You're Jesus. It's waiting for you.